You're listening to the Screaming Pods Network. We are the Sacred Collective. All are respected, all are heard, all are welcomed. Join us. Welcome to the Sacred Collective. Um, we're here at the annual UCC, United Church of Christ Annual Conference in St. Joseph's, Minnesota. Um, we have the distinct honor and pleasure of interviewing the Reverend John Dorhauer, General Minister and President of the United Church of Christ. Um, so we're just going to kind of jump right in um, to these questions. So, John, give a brief bio about who you are and what you do for the United Church of Christ. And this is specifically for uh, people who listen who aren't familiarized with the United Church of Christ. I'll do my best. And, Brian, thanks for inviting me to be a part of the conversation. Thank you. So let's talk just quickly about the title, General Minister and President. It's a schizophrenic position created by the United Church of Christ that asks me as the general minister to sort of be the theological voice of the denomination, to sort of cast a vision and inspire people, and the and president, which gives me the role of administrating about 100 employees at our national offices in Cleveland. Those are two completely different positions that belong to two completely different people with two completely different skill sets, and uh, I have to try to do both jobs simultaneously. Um, I travel mostly around the country, but also around the world. We have uh, mission partners in about 89 countries around the world. And I get to go to various places and bear witness to what the United Church of Christ is willing to do in order to embody love in the world. Fantastic. Yeah, it's pretty Um, cool. We also, we have guests as well, um, members of the United Churches of Christ throughout Minnesota, but we have... Um, this Church 3.0 think tank um, in Minnesota that it's this new group we're spearheading that Rick uh, you've asked us to be a part of and so this kind of when we've talked about this on our Zoom conference calls we've kind of talked about Church 3.0 ministries and we think Sacred Collective is one of those of what we're doing we're just trying to spearhead podcasting because podcasting is huge right now not just in Uh, progressive circles but all over the board so um, we think it's important if any of you want to have questions too for John um, jump in do you want to do a quick roll call Brian just establish those here great Um, I'm Brian (laughs) Uh, Sherry Mason from Austin Tori Vandezan from Hackensack and Nathan Holst from Duluth and Caleb I'm here and yeah and I'm Rick Wagner and I'm on the conference staff awesome Um, question two you wrote the book Beyond Resistance, which is fantastic, by the way, <laughs> Thank where you. you explore how institutional church meets postmodernism. Can you tell us a bit about your conclusions? I know that's a very open-ended question. Yeah. but So I had uh, spent some time on a sabbatical after about a decade of research into postmodern thinking, and I had been watching not just the United Church of Christ, but institutional religion as we know it, react to what was emerging as a threat to it. Mm-hmm. Um, as our numbers were declining and we were worried about were we going to be relevant in a decade, we saw what was coming as a threat. And it's not the first time the church, as we know it, has gone through a major shift like this. Uh, the last big one was the Reformation 500 mm-hmm. years ago, and the church reacted the same way. This is a threat to us. Let's try to wipe it out. 
and it it resisted what clearly the Holy Spirit was asking the church to do, which is to go through a new birthing process. So the title of the book, Beyond Resistance, is to help the church this time as it makes this major shift get beyond the resistance that tore the church apart the last time we went through this and realize that what's coming is not a threat to us, but is actually being called into being by the Holy Spirit. So I, I literally left the institutional church for three months as we know it, and then just went on the road and visited 3.0 postmodern worshiping communities all over the country, talked to their leaders, and I tested one question. Is, is this truly an authentic birthing of the Holy Spirit, or do we need to be afraid of what's coming? And I left it, and this is the conclusion that the book talks mm-hmm. about. There is no question that this is called into being by the Holy Spirit, and we should embrace it. And so then, um, part of my responsibility, and I was general minister and president of an institutional model church, is to build a bridge from one way of being to another to get us beyond the resistance and to open ourselves up to what I think is clearly the movement of the Holy Spirit in our time. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, I guess that kind of goes in. Um, what are some UCC 3.0, 3.0 ministries that you could tell us about? Like maybe in when you mm-hmm. were doing that for your book and some of the some of those stories. Uh, Forest Church was one of the ones I experienced when I was doing the research. It was a, a group in. Flagstaff, Arizona, up in the mountains at about eight to 10,000 feet of altitude. Uh, pastor there was Ken McIntosh, and Ken was doing research for us in the Southwest Conference on Churches 3.0. He was pastoring an institutional model church, First Congregational of Flagstaff, and just started walking trails on Saturday nights and doing guided meditations. And before he knew it, there were a, a group, sometimes it would be a half a dozen, sometimes it would be 15 or 20, that would meet him at a trailhead. He'd post on his Facebook page, this is where I'm going to be, this is when we're going to start. Um, and these were not people who wanted to sit in a pew on a Sunday morning, but they loved walking the mountain trails with him and doing guided meditations. It would take about 90 minutes. They'd walk along the way. Maybe every 10 or 15 minutes they'd stop, and for five minutes he'd do a guided meditation with them, and they'd continue on their way. Um, it, further south in Arizona, in Tucson, was a church called Sacred Space. I, I say church. I shouldn't call it that because they, they don't call themselves a church. And it never identified with the United Church of Christ, even though the pastor was an authorized minister in the United Church of Christ. And Sacred Space still meets in Tucson. And they quickly grew to about 60 people who would gather from various walks of faith. And every Sunday afternoon, they would meet for an hour or two, and a different faith leader would come in. Maybe it would be a Buddhist monk. Maybe it would be a Catholic nun. Maybe it would be a Jewish Kabbalist. Mm -hmm. And they would get an opportunity with this group in what they called their sacred space to unfold what their worship traditions looked like and how they encountered the sacred. Uh, They would have a local musician come in and, as a part of their gathering, would lead people in a variety of different styles of music, and then they'd all share a meal together, the food that they had each brought in and shared with one another, and that's what they called their sacred space. And during the week, they had space in downtown Tucson where she would do spiritual counseling or spiritual therapy or yoga. Um, 
uh, a third place I'll talk about is in Bath, Maine. Bath, Maine, there was a large UCC church, uh, the biggest in town, massive piece of property. And about 20 years ago, they could no longer sustain that property with the membership, so they moved to another part of town, still a traditional church building, uh, parking lot, and all the accoutrements that you would expect from a church with the stained glass windows and the pews and the pipe organ and the pulpit. And then about five years ago, they abandoned that and bought a storefront right on the harbor in Bath, Maine. And it's a... I say it's a storefront, they actually turned it into a restaurant. Uh, about a, a dozen tables with chairs. They'll move them out on Sunday morning for their worship. And then on Tuesday evening, they host a dinner for anybody coming in off the street. Um, when they first started this, um, the street people would come in and there were high levels of paranoia and suspicion about who they were and what they were doing. And they wouldn't come in and eat the meals at the table. They'd ask for a box to take mm-hmm. it out. But after a month or two, they realized this was a community they could trust. And now every Tuesday, about 85 people are served in this restaurant. Some members of the church serve as the wait staff. They always bring in a local chef who prepares an amazing meal for them, tablecloths, candles, music. Some of the members of the church actually sit at the table so that they can be in conversation with and hear the stories of the folk who gather. There's no expectation that they return on Sunday morning, and most of them don't, uh, but some do. And the pastor calls what happens on Sunday morning in this converted restaurant space a liturgical train wreck. He says he comes in with a very loose idea of what's going to happen, and usually about halfway through he has to abandon whatever plans he's got because the, the worship audience just sort of takes it over and does what they want anyway. Fantastic. Thank you for that insight. Yeah. Um, how can UCC churches, so maybe Church 2.0 using that language, yep. or like brick-and-mortar churches, how yep. can they support 3.0 ministries, like these ones that you've just talked about and others? So there are a number of ways. I think the most important way is, is more of a spiritual support, and it's stop acting as if this is a threat to you, and stop acting as if you owe it to Jesus and God to try and... Um, you know, squash or quash this movement. Um, whatever's happening to you isn't a result of what's happening here. Um, and it is an authentic articulation of the gospel. And so that spiritual understanding that the Holy Spirit, which is always moving as a part of this, is, is probably the most important thing. But uh, another thing is I, I argue that there are mission missional financial resources that we are stewards of in church 2.0 that really already belong to church 3.0 and one of the things that we can do is identify a 3.0 church that shares our core values and be a contributing member because all of those communities of faith are struggling uh, to find a way to finance their ministry Um, and I think we have an obligation a, a moral uh, and an ethical obligation to be wise stewards of mission resources that we possess that could be of great benefit to them. Uh, a number of 2.0 churches have, have satellited a 3.0 church. I met a church in Salt Lake City that did just this, and they brought in this 30-something hipster and 
put him on their staff, paid his salary, and said, do what you do. And you're not accountable to us. You're accountable to whatever faith community you can build. Um, And they gave him the space in the church. They would use it on Sunday morning. He would use it on Sunday evening. And he built a a 3.0 community. And um, it was completely funded. And he was paid as a staff member of that existing church. Um, So those are a number of things. Um, I would say this. A 2.0 church doesn't do its members any favor by trying to become a 3.0 church. Uh, a lot of 2.0 churches see that as, you know, the sort of the magic bullet for their regained vitality. It, it's actually uh, a way to kill your existing congregation. And the fact of the matter is, there are many of our worshiping members who don't live in a 3.0 environment or world. And if we try to make the, that the world they worship in, they're going to find another church that will meet their needs. So that's not what we're looking for. No, wait a minute, John. I gotta just jump in here. You mean putting the coffee shop in the church is not the not the that is not the solution to it. There there are things that two point churches will do to sort of modernize the experience. But what we're not talking about a paradigm shift. We're talking about going from a two point to a two point one or a two point two model church. Um, that makes sense. But even those have to be within the tolerance range of what the worshiping members can experience um, but to make the complete paradigm shift to a 3.0 model is not the way to do that so now a coffee yep. shop okay. in the North X Shucks. just for, for listeners can I ask you a, a quick question just to can you kind of articulate kind of more specifically what these uh, these numerical values of 2.0 3.0 how, how high does this scale is there yeah. a 5.0 down the, down no, the road it, here? It, it's completely arbitrary and it is a gross oversimplification of the history of the church as we know it. Mm-hmm. The 1.0 model would basically be what we know as Catholicism prior to the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, it's a gross oversimplification. The history is much more nuanced and complex but, than that, but it makes the point. Okay, sure. And then in um, 1517, Martin Luther tacked the theses, 95 theses, to the cathedral doors at Wittenberg called the entire way of being church into question, uh, 150 years of wars swept across the European continent, and the two churches divided. That the, There is now a, a Roman or a Catholic tradition and a Protestant tradition. And the Protestant tradition has splintered itself into multiple parts, but it's still generically Protestant Christianity. What the world is realizing is that there has been a significant shift not unlike what Luther recognized 500 years ago, that says about both models they're insufficient to meet the spiritual needs of this emerging populace that is now living in a world very different than the one I grew up in. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a 3.0 model is emerging. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what that represents. Again, it's a gross oversimplification, Mm -hmm. but it makes the point in a way that's easy to understand. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, that's a lot of the questions I had. If anybody else has any questions for John, just feel free to to ask. I have, I have a couple of words. Okay, is that all right? Sure. And, um, I'm the only one here who's not a member of the church, and I think honestly, for our listeners, that might provide a little bit of insight, just because yeah. I know that you guys share a lot of uh, common vocabulary about about right. church 3.0 and things like that 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 I'm not fully familiar with. Yeah. But it sounds like maybe I am involved in a 
in, in something that resembles this between part of Sacred Collective and everything like that. Uh, but I was, I was curious when you said earlier about uh, 2.0 churches um, taking on satellites, you know, 3.0 satellites that have common values. Could you just kind of briefly sum up like what those common values are? So let's talk about a couple of the controversies that have split churches 2.0. Uh-huh. You know, we don't have to worry about that in Church 1.0 because in that model, the, the worshipers are told what they have to believe, mm-hmm. and so you don't have to worry about a split. But in much of Protestant Christianity, where the members who use the Bible as sort of their their spiritual guide will argue about what the Bible actually is teaching them. Um, and so when I talk about some of these core values that need to be consistent with what we you know, give birth to, uh, one of the great controversies is what does the church have to say about homosexuality? Sure. And the United Church of Christ has positioned itself to say that Scripture mandates uh, you know, this sort of all-are-welcome mm-hmm. approach to Christianity. It would be unwise for a church with that core value mm-hmm to give birth to a church that was going to preach that homosexuality is evil. Mm -hmm. That's an example of what I mean by sharing a core value. Yeah. We we have this three great loves initiative in the United Church of Christ. The love of creation is one of those, for example. And where I'm seeing uh, 3.0 initiatives, they're often environmentally based. For example, we have this this one here in Minnesota um, coming out of the Mendota Heights Church they're calling it um, environment and spirituality, and they're using targeted ads on Facebook and metro-wide ads on Meetup. They've got hundreds of people signed up on that so far. So people come mostly from outside the established church, and um, they're doing things like um, uh, they rotate four groups a month, meditation and prayers for the earth and all its creatures, or they explore the four great elements of earth, air, water, and fire. Uh, they have a podcast discussion group, uh, and people discuss podcasts or YouTube videos or TED Talks, for example, and uh, sacred writing in the nature, natural world. So, And that, that tries to guide people in their own writing. So, um, And then they invite people, when there's a fifth Wednesday or a fifth meeting during the month, they invite people or groups active in in environmental action to be part of of the group and so one month for example they brought in uh, minnesota interfaith power and light which Mm. is an advocacy group and so forth so you know that that would be i just wanted to mention as a common shared value this environmental stewardship care for creation i'd be curious caleb you Mm -hmm. talked about uh you're part of a community or a collective Uh, much of what I've encountered in postmodern worship is really that the, the practitioners of any experience are asking for two things. And I'd be curious if this is consistent with, with your own personal journey. Two things. One is, um, in some way, having an opportunity to have an authentic experience with the sacred, however that gets defined. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all define our relationship with the sacred differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so postmodern worshipers are just asking, and many of them are samplers, so they'll find that in a, a Buddhist monastery mm-hmm. or, or they'll find that in a mountain lake. Mm-hmm. or um, And oftentimes their experiences in traditional sanctuaries is that what they experience there actually is an impediment to that sure. encounter with mm-hmm. the sacred. And then the second thing I often hear is they want to be a part of a community that can give them an opportunity to make sure that they make a difference somewhere. Mm-hmm. 
that putting money in an offering check and being told this is going to feed the hungry isn't mm. sufficient. Mm. They want to actually see that what they're doing matters to somebody mm. and makes a difference. Is that consistent? Yeah, I'd say so. Um, I think the the only, I don't even say a hang-up, but the, my only thing that I might just define a little bit differently is encountering the sacred. I, I would consider even maybe some, some more uh, humanistic uh, groups you know, in collectives to, I mean, you, I think, feel like you define those things as sacred. When you, when you play with terms like sacred or the divine, and I hear you using the term the Holy Spirit a lot, and also I'm kind of curious to ask you, when you say that, but then you still acknowledge, like, interfaith relationships as, as being valid or having value in them, um, is, is, do you think that that is, that the Holy Spirit as, as a definable entity is guiding, let's say, a, a someone who appreciates Buddhism or something like that? Yeah, so, I, well, and I, I'm glad you asked the question. For me, the Holy Spirit is an utterly indefinable entity. Okay. I have no idea what she is. Okay. Or, or that, I mean, we tend to anthropomorphize sure, sure, these sure. things. Yeah. I, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. What I am aware of is there's an impulse beyond me mm-hmm. that compels me to reach out to my neighbor with mm-hmm. love and compassion sure. and empathy. Mm-hmm. I can get 100% on board with, right. with that definition and, for sure. And I, you know, I live in a world where that vocabulary yeah. means something to the, the people Absolutely. that I speak yeah. with. And I, I realize that it doesn't work in all places. Sure, yeah. But yeah. It, it's this ineffable, indefinable, mm-hmm. inexplicable entity. Mm-hmm. Again, that we often anthropomorphize, but... Is simply that which compels me to love it. Yeah, that's really nice. And it can, of course, be tricky when you're communicating with people, especially maybe someone who'd be attracted to a church 3.0 environment. But a lot of those people, in my experience, and I'm involved with uh, you know, Revolution Church with Jay Baker. I even speak there sometimes. We do sacred collect. So I have two, you know, collectives that I meet with every week that I'm, I get a lot of value out of. You know, but uh, one reason that I'm drawn to those environments is because, uh, like, I was raised in a very very uh, controlling conservative Southern Baptist environment, and I still, I still, you know, really value community and the stories of the Bible and Scripture and, and the teachings of Christ. But at the same time, I can sometimes be triggered by terminology like "I move by the Spirit," or, you know, or this and that. I don't, I don't yeah. mean to say anything like, "Oh well, you know, screw you guys for using those terms," but just to me, because of my past, I can be triggered by those things. Or like you said earlier, even by like walking in and seeing like a pipe organ or something like that. And so just from my experiences and from my conditioning and things, you know, I, I'm more drawn to a smaller community of, of, of friends who are being honest and, and still trying to pursue what you might call the sacred or the, the Holy Spirit. And it's important for me and it's important for any of us who, we, who are birthed in and live in the 2.0 world to be aware of the language we use mm. or the accoutrements that we borrow that actually trigger trauma. Right, yeah. Somebody sure, sure. Had an experience like mm-hmm. that, so thank you. Yeah. yeah, of course. And thank you for, for being patient and, and defining those terms a little bit more clearly. I appreciate mm-hmm. that a lot. I'd like to ask some questions about the sacraments. Sure. The place where I'm wrestling with right now, where Roman Catholic has named seven sacraments ordained by God that the church is to practice. Protestants, we have two sacraments. I struggle the first Sunday of every month. We have Holy Communion, and as a ordained pastor, I need to be present uh, to officiate over the meal. I struggle with that 100%. Uh, sacrament is Holy Baptism. Again, I struggle. I love ritual. I love ritual, so I can sort of understand it. But as people coming in the door that this is the Sunday we celebrate Holy Communion, 
whereas Holy Communion has already been celebrated maybe 10 times before they even walked in the door. Do you think they'll ever get a point where the church will be able to let go of first Sunday of the month Holy Communion or sacrament of baptism and to see the whole of every single moment of every single day as a type of holy so participation? I, I think yes, but I also think, let's take sacrament out of the context of church. There are powerful rituals that every culture uses to mark certain important moments in one's life. And for us, those are sacraments. And, and they, the, the vocabulary shifts depending on what the culture is and what the experience is. Even though we may reach a more mature understanding of how God can be encountered every day, anywhere, anytime, with anybody. Yeah, and I don't even like to call it mature because I think then, yeah, then we've just done something that we don't want to do. Catch some judgment to it. Yes. Even though we may evolve to that point. I don't want to use that word. Right. Another word. <laughs> Even though Shift. we may find ourselves in a new place. In a new place. Doesn't mean I still right? think that, that, it's new. It's new for me. that we are going to collectively identify those moments that stand out as marker moments. And there will always be some ritual attached to it. The current articulation of the church in the institutional model requires, in most instances, that an authorized, seminary-trained, ordained clergy perform those rituals. But there is all, it has been true throughout the life of the church that there have been parts of the body that don't restrict themselves to that. And one of the um, 3.0 communities that I got to know in the, the research that I was doing for the book was a, just a, a woman, Joyce was her name, and she was traumatized by her own upbringing in a very fundamentalist background and walked away from the church in order to preserve her sanity. And then her sanity was compromised because the tapes kept playing about how she was going to hell. And it would take her decades to move past that. And she just discovered, I have to have some spiritual grounding. And so uh, she discovered at, at some point there were about 40 people gathering in her living room every Sunday to, to share an experience with her. We, we might call it worship, but we wouldn't recognize it as such, and they didn't call it worship. Among those, that group were two atheists. And at one point, there was a lesbian couple who came in with an adopted child and asked her to baptize that child. This is getting to the heart of the sacrament question that you're asking. She had no training. She had no authority. There wasn't a congregation anywhere that was going to not only recognize that, but record that, as we tend to do in these sacramental moments. And she wasn't sure she should say yes, but she realized that she had been offering herself as a spiritual guide to these people, and she then bore some responsibility. So even with some trepidation and anxiety, she said yes. And on a Sunday morning, they gathered in a yoga studio. The two atheists that were part of that community showed up for that. And the two women walked in with their child. And one of them was carrying a statue of the Buddha. And they asked if anybody would mind if they placed that Buddha in front of the baptismal font. Joyce took the baby in her arms. Nobody objected to the Buddha. And with just almost intuitively, instinctively, and from her own memory of how do you do this, um, bless the water, bless the child, baptize the baby. I've told this story in many institutional 2.0 circles. Nobody doubts that that was an authentic baptism um, or that that was a sacramental moment. 
And I do think that new understandings of how to honor these moments are going to develop and are going to shift our understanding of what is required in such a moment. Um, I was a local church pastor and the youth group was having a meeting that I couldn't be at and they wanted to do communion. And I said to Joan, the, the lay woman that helped me with the youth, uh, she was wondering, how are we going to do this? I said, Joan, stand at the table with one of the youth and consecrate the elements. Just do it. Just do it. Just right. do it. All right. Well, this is, to me, a really interesting conversation about the difference between 2.0 and 3.0 and, and the relationship to um, tradition and, and stories you know, like to me, the 3.0 could embody um, sort of new flesh on old stories, you know, take it out of the pulpit um, and, and bring, a, bring a story alive so that even folks that maybe haven't been a part of a um, know that, you know, know that uh, biblical stories could still say, oh, I see myself there. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and, right. And, get, and, and get wrapped up in the story. But because of also because of like uh, folks that have been harmed by those mm-hmm. same stories, I, it, it piques my curiosity of what's the fate of Christianity? Mm-hmm. Not like a scared, like, I don't, you know, I mean, this, this struggle is, is within me as well. You know, the, mm-hmm. the rejection on the one hand and, you know, the mentors who have brought Christianity alive to me saying, here's a deep wisdom tradition. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of context to know, mm-hmm. right? That's clunky. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same time, if, if, you know, even the conversation around a, a, a appropriation as well of, 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 you know, what's the line between sampling and, and appropriating and, and are we going deep enough in traditions? So, you know, all these mm-hmm. things are alive so, for me in this. So here's how I answer it. What's going to happen to Christianity? Uh, let's start with this. They'll know we are Christians by... Our love. Our love. love. The entire law can be summed up in this. (laughs) Fill in the blank. The, the entire law can be summed up in this. Right. You shall love, love the Lord and your God with all your heart, soul, and your neighbor as yourself. Yep. So what's going to happen to Christianity can be, I think, also asked in this way, to what extent does love continue to operate? Christianity is nothing more than a, a vessel or a mechanism to entice and engender love. Mm. And I don't care what form it takes, Christianity is Christianity to the extent that its adherents engender love. It's not Christianity because of the stained glass windows, the pews, the pulpits, the organs, the hymns. All of those inspire and engender love, but they're the tools that Christianity used to perpetuate that. And when we open the lens up, we discover that Kabbalist Judaism and monastic Buddhism and begin to fill in the blanks, even some articulations of paganism and more humanistic uh, understandings of communities and gender love. And that's the future of Christianity. As long as love is articulated, Christianity lives, whether its churches survive or whether its institutions survive or whether its sacraments survive is not the question whether authorized ministry as we know it continues to be the primary means by which the faithful are fed doesn't matter if love is practiced christianity is alive so so is christianity a spiritual movement rather than a religion i mean i I, maybe those terms are not helpful either yeah i um it is it is a movement yes and i i really doubt 
that Jesus was interested in a religion evolving that saw him as the one we worship. Oh, you have, you know, I carry a card in my wallet. Yeah. Have you seen this? I, when, maybe. When, when, when church people... I have a get out of hell free card. <laughs> Well, it, it's, it's when, when the discussion goes a little too legalistically, I have this, this little card that I don't think it's laminated. It's just, yeah, it's a little laminated <laughs> card that I, that I show around the room. It says, I don't think this matters to Jesus. Yeah, I keep you, it. Just you to, may need that a couple of times for oh, this weekend. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's why I brought it. No. <laughs> That's yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. Any other? I have a question. What words of encouragement or maybe advice? Would you give to a new pastor or uh, a layperson who has a heart to really look at starting or being part of a 3.0 church? Right. Um, a, a couple of things, Tori. Um, as long as you're clear about your call, right? And I don't know anybody engaged in the practice of ministry who hasn't felt a genuine, authentic call to that. It doesn't matter how you live that out, whether you're one who's in a, a membership church with 200 members who can afford to pay you a, a, a living wage, or whether you have to get a job down the street working at a library during the week in order to feed your flock in some other way. Staying true to the call is the most important thing. Um, and I'm going to use Holy Spirit language again, Caleb. Okay. I won't be um, Don't let you define the term. Right. <laughs> I can yeah. stomach it. Um, somebody told me early on when I was under threat of losing a position in a church I held because of a position that I had taken, they looked me in the eyes and they asked, do you doubt that you were called by God to do this? No, I don't doubt it. Do you doubt that what you did or said was consistent with what God placed on your heart to speak? So I don't doubt that. He said, okay, even if you get fired, the Holy Spirit will find a pathway for you to do that which you were called to do. And, and so we tend to apply metrics that we use to evaluate our worth, our value, our success. And those metrics often have to do with how many bodies and how many dollars. Um, if we begin, though, to think of a metric in, in the order of, am I living out my call? Am I doing what I was called here to do? And are lives impacted by it? That's a very different set of lenses. And that would be my advice to anybody starting out in ministry. Use that as the test for whether or not your life's purpose is being fulfilled. Even if it means you're working at a Walmart as a greeter Monday through Friday. And maybe one more thing, Tori. Have fun and play, <laughs> right? Play. Because this incoming generation is going to rebuild the body of Christ as we know it. And there's no template. There's no rules. And don't measure or limit your expectations based on what the current expression of the church tells you is not just possible but permissible and play. You can't break it. You can create pain, but a part of our faith experience says that beyond pain, there's grace and forgiveness and reconciliation and resurrection, but you can't break it. Mm -hmm. Cool. 
John, you, you began, thanks to Brian's question, talking about your position as somewhat schizophrenic, that there are two different skill <laughs> yes. sets. And this is where I'm going back to Tori. Because if you're a new pastor, you, you have a responsibility to the, the employing body. And, John, you said that it, you can't make 2.0 into 3.0. Right. So uh, I guess from my conference perspective, helping churches with search and call, what I would say is that a local church pastor needs to have some of that same schizophrenia. And that same ability to embrace two different roles or understand there's different skill sets. In fact, I mean, I know you folks have those skill sets because you've done unique and interesting things in your lives and in your current settings. But you have to attend to the needs of the 2.0 church. But if you do that faithfully, I think they'll give you space and room to try something new. And, and the hard thing may be to, to tell your people, this isn't meant for you. <laughs> you know, this isn't meant for you. you know, um, one of the people on our think tank, Neil, was part of Root and Branch Church in Chicago. And he said the hard thing he had there was getting people to develop some sort of connection with one another, some, some continuity. And then he moved to Minnesota, took this well-established old church, where all those connections are already in place. There's no innovation, but he was, you know, felt blessed to have all those close connections. So I, I think we need to understand there's two different things that we may be trying to do or called to do. And, uh, uh, you know, got to treat them separately, I suppose. But I just want to reiterate, too, and I think we've all said it here, is just experimenting. Yes. And I think we've talked about, like, in yeah. our Church 3.0 think tank here from Minnesota, is it's like a big sandbox, and we just need to get in that sandbox. Like, I have my daughter who loves playing in the sandbox and just creating new things and fun things. Because, like you said, John, we're not going to break it. We're not going to break the church, like, by coming and creating new things and new expressions. And I feel like even this podcast, it kind of just happened organically. It's just a bunch of us friends got together and we're like, let's just talk. A lot of us were hurt from the church. You know, a lot of them were former evangelicals. We have, you know, open atheists in our group. We were all kind of hurt in a way. And I was like, hey, I see a need to A, just be with my friends. And and then, it, like, we brought our pain, what triggered us, what excited us about God or faith and spirituality. And this has kind of morphed into what it is now today of, of what we're doing so just even what we did was experimenting, but for pastors who are, you know, in the UCC who are doing Church 2.0, and they're like, I want to experiment, I want to do potentially Church 3.0, do it, you know, like experiment. I mean, it might fail, great, it might fail, or it might succeed. You don't know until you try. One of the messages I, I use often is uh, just simply prepare to fail. And it's not my way of saying you just you're not going to succeed, or the church as we know it is dying. Just get ready for it. It's a way of saying exactly what you just said. Um, do something outside the box. Be an entrepreneur. Take that creative energy that you've been given, but nobody's given you permission to mm-hmm. do it, and just do it. And maybe you'll fail, but there are ways to fail where we grow from it. And and. Don't own your failure as yours. Give it to the body as a gift so that we can all learn from that what what didn't happen the way you wanted to and why and what's next. And get in there and do it again and do it again and do it again. Anything else? Any last burning questions? 
Can I, can I ask one more? It's okay. It's uh, your show, man. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm just curious, when you talk about this, when you're kind of confronted with the question of postmodernism and the right. direction things were going and stuff like that, um, was there like a pivotal moment where you where you confronted this question, you weren't fully secure or comfortable with it, and then you had like some, was there like a moment where, you, where your thinking shifted, or was it just kind of being immersed in, in a different environment? So um, there's a yes and no response to this. I, I grew up in a Catholic church. I spent eight years in a Catholic seminary. And long before I knew what I was doing, I was a practicing postmodern. Mm-hmm. Um, and for it's never this clean, but post-World War II shifted the world. Mm-hmm. That's really what we're talking about here. Shifted the world. And this is a gross oversimplification. But in the world before... World War II, we trusted our institutions. And we believed that as a human culture, our technology and our science and our shared wisdom was getting us closer and closer and closer to some sort of perfect existence. We were constantly improving things. And then at the end of World War II, we realized that our own technology, our own science, had gotten us to a point where without a moral compass, we had created the capacity to destroy life on this planet as we knew it. That's what the nuclear holocaust was. And by the end of the the century, by the end of the millennium, we would add to that that our thirst for this technology and this science and this art of production had altered the climate in ways that human life on the planet was in threat and in danger and almost 20 years after that moment, we've not proven a desire or a capacity to want to change that. Mm-hmm. This is the postmodern world. Mm-hmm. It questions everything. It doesn't have blind faith or loyalty in an institution, and it does more deconstructing mm-hmm. not just institutions, but the truth that institutions believed they stood for. Mm-hmm. So there are no more universal truths. There's no more blind loyalty to. And an entire way of being church or being active as a person of faith shifted completely. And so here's the yes part of it. I found myself three eight years in a Catholic seminary questioning everything. I was a child of an, a post-enlightenment, post-modern era that wouldn't just do what my dad told me, which was just don't question authority and do what you're told. Mm -hmm. I no longer lived in that world, and I could never go back to that world. And we're trying to figure out how faith articulates itself as a pathway to love your neighbor Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in a world where we question everything. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense, Caleb? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it does. And if I can add just that last bit here, too... um, this is where, for me, this question of Christianity, right? Of like, because I share that if it if it brings me to greater love, yes. But you know, after deconstructing everything, yes, mm-hmm. and then you say, well, do greater love, like, where's the where's the like inspiration, the stories, the the history, the mentors, all you know, all of that to to help me, you know, yeah. and so like that's that's my wrestling. Right? And here's what, this would be my response to that, Nathan. It's in what we call the good book. It's in the traditions of Christianity, 
But we're no longer going to live in a world where those who are seeking that pathway have a monogamous relationship with Christianity because it's also in the writings of Khalil Gibran and it's also in uh, the the mystics of Kabbalist Judaism. And and so Christianity as... um, not just a monotheism, but a monotheism that demands a, a monogamous relationship mm-hmm. with, mm-hmm. I, I think is a dying prospect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that mandates a certain definition for vocabularies like Holy Spirit yep. and yep. things like that. Because I know that right. since I've deconstructed and, and come to, uh, like maybe stepped away from it to an extent and then come back to saying, you know, I, I, can't, I can't disown my relationship with, with this vocabulary, you know, or, or with these terms and things like that. And then coming to a place where I can say, okay, I can approach this all metaphorically. I can even approach, if I need to some days, I can approach God metaphorically and still fully... I don't know any other words. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. And, and I don't have to be angry at these institutions anymore. And I can, I can find value in these stories, in these myths, in these, in these you know, in these fables even. And um, and I, I think it's important for for even atheists and for, for you know post Christian culture to recognize that being angry at the church isn't really getting you anywhere. And you might even have a good time, you know, with with a group of like we were talking about having atheists coming to collectives and things like that. Like as as long as as long as they can find um, an assuredness that no one's going to whack them over the head with the Bible and try to convert them right. or something like that, then. Then there are there are safe spaces that can still use Christian tools, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's what's your best experience of community, where you live out and experience the love that we're talking about, mm-hmm. and and can you meld that community in ways that uh, help people encounter the holy or the sacred? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's where some of the traditions spiritual tradition, spiritual disciplines, whatever religious tradition they may right. be, part of Buddhist, Taoist, Sufi, you name mm-hmm. it. You know, how, how do we pull those things together? So, yeah. yeah. I think this is a good ending point because it's lunchtime. It is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, John, thank you so much for mm-hmm. giving us... Uh, your awesome insight. Um, hey, you're welcome. And just what you do for the U, you know UCC, um, I think we're all uh, in gratitude for what you do and all the hard work. So, till next time. Mm-hmm. Thanks for being part of our conversation. To continue the conversation, find us on social media at sacred underscore mn. A post Christian production. 